welcome to The Good Complex, an opportunity we have to kind of create a space in a world where we're so polarized and where it's so easy to focus on the negative and all the bad stuff that's happening to say, no, actually, there's tremendous good things happening in our world and some amazing people who are doing amazing things that are making our world better. Also an opportunity to have conversations with people that we may disagree with, but we all have in common a desire for the common good. Uh, So my name is Jeff Jones. I'm here with my co-host, Greg Holmes, and uh, it's our privilege to guide this conversation, which is an incredible story of somebody doing great good, and that is Chad Hauser. And thank you so much, Chad, for hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored honor uh, to be here. And you grew up not far from here, just a few miles probably in Allen, Texas. So. Just a, a, a few miles. I think you would actually back then define it as just a few fields away from Yes, that's from right. <laughs> so you're a Texan. Do you have a hat, boots, horse? Gun? <laughs> yeah. I just had this conversation earlier today that I, I come from a, a, a fine uh, lineage of uh, uh, East Texas um, – Country folk, I think, is what we'll politely refer to them as. Uh, and I, I um, love my family very much, and they've done so much to shape who I am. But I've really worked so hard my entire life to lose any semblance of accent. I don't that hear they it. Have. Yeah, yeah, I don't hear it. That's great. So uh, Chad is the founder of Cafe Momentum, and you run Cafe Momentum, which is an. I, I really look forward to hearing this story. It's an incredible organization and mission uh, behind this restaurant, which is way more than a restaurant. Um, but you know, you got into, I mean, you're a chef, which is cool because Greg is an artist and you're a chef and I just feel like a dud, (laughs) 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 I really do, but that's okay. Right. We've all got our gifts. I just don't know what mine are. So, um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with the whole chef thing. So I, I don't really like to cook that much, but I watch food network all like I, I saw, I think three or four episodes last night of beat Bobby Flay. And I just can't. So, stop. so what do you think of Food Network and like competitive like cooking shows and stuff? It is, um, you know, it, it, it's a love hate relationship. Um, certainly, um, it has done an incredible job of promoting um, restaurants and chefs. Um, it's completely changed the landscape um, of you know, I mean, even just the term foodie. Um, right. Yeah. You know, I think some people. There was a, a, a generous amount of people that would enjoy traveling and going out to eat, and that's just been exaggerated now by um, by by the invention of the Food Network. Uh-huh. Um, but on the other end of that, um, boy, there are a lot of home cooks that fancy themselves a chef, and I, <laughs> you know, they, they, they want to yeah. have these conversations and talk a lot about, yeah. like, you know, oh, well, at home, I do this and I do that. And sometimes you just want to look at them and say, okay, but can you do that 75 times in a row? <laughs> but except for one order has to have no gluten. And then the next order they want their eggs. And then the next order they want. And right. they, well, that's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. But, um, All in 10 you know, minutes. that's, yeah. Um, I, I think so. So it's a blessing and a curse for sure. So, so what got you into it? Was it kind of the art and the creativity of it? Or did you work in restaurants and you love the energy because it's certainly I think like as you describe a lot of people kind of love the art of cooking but it's like but actually being in a in a in a kitchen and like it's not about the art of it all the time you know you have to sort of love the energy and the and the hours even and you know all that kind of stuff so like how, how did you get into it well um you know it, this is um silly to say but it's not a really a one dimensional answer you know um i i grew up um uh and with a very very tight knit family um and every sunday my mom my dad myself my aunts uncles and cousins all of us would go to my grandparents house and have dinner together mm-hmm. um a sunday supper of sorts and so for me um food represented a lot more than just the creative side um even just eating or even the flavors. I mean, it was about the family. It was about the bond. It was about the camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but food was always very interesting to me as well. And, you know, I mean, I distinctly remember being in, you know, home during the summer and making myself tuna salad and seeing like how much onion I could put mm-hmm. into tuna salad before it totally grossed me out or my friends <laughs> out. Right. right. Um, 
and then you know um kind of going through in high school um began to actually like read cookbooks and um started playing around with recipes that was mainly meant to to impress girls but um uh when i went to college um i just really i had absolutely no idea what i wanted to do with my life and i spent um you know, originally growing up, I wanted to be the next Dale Hansen. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. I wrote him a letter in the seventh grade um, so I could shadow him for a day yeah. and thought that was my career path until I got to college and thought, I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do. <laughs> so I'm... Dale Hansen, for those outside of Dallas, is oh, a yes. sports, sportscaster extraordinaire. Legendary the, sportscaster in Dallas. In Dallas and, yeah. um, you know, when I went and shadowed him, he didn't show up for work until after four o'clock. And I mean, that was just magnificent to me. That <laughs> you don't have to go to work till four. <laughs> you could play video games all day. You know? right. um, but um, I finished my first two years of college. And, you know, like at a certain point, they're like, well, you got to declare a major. Um, and I just thought, I just don't know what I want to do with my life. And so um, I sat down with my parents and, you know, I grew up in a household where um, going to college was not optional. It was not a luxury. It was mandatory. I was mm-hmm. expected to go to college. I was expected to graduate college. I was expected to go into the, the workforce. I was expected to build a successful career. Um, and so uh, I sat down with my parents and I said, look, I, I understand I mean, if I heard my mom say it once, I heard her say a million times, you have to get a degree because you'll always be able to fall back on it. You'll always have it and you'll always be able to fall back on it. And 17, 18, 19 years old at the time, I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but okay. <laughs> um, so I I finally just told my parents, I said, look, um, I'll finish college. I'm going to get a degree in English literature. Um, and that was because I took an English literature class and was fascinated by the poem Under Milkwood by Dylan mm. Thomas and thought it was so like romantic yet bizarre and intriguing and thought well i'll just dedicate my life to reading more of that stuff and trying to figure it out um my but i told them i said i'm gonna get a degree in english literature but um after i've done that and got my degree i'd like to go try cooking because uh, i just can't see myself sitting behind a desk Mm -hmm. i can't see Mm -hmm. myself sitting in front of a computer i can't see myself doing that sort of stuff and um my dad who um, admitted years later that he had these visions of me um, living at home and sleeping on their couch for the rest of my life <laughs> uh, encouraged me instead of pursuing English literature to go to culinary school. Uh, and so I did. Yeah. And um, honestly showed up the first day of culinary school and thought, I have no earthly idea what I'm doing. Um, and then after like the first year thought, I'll never succeed at this. I, I had this very, uh, this, this, kind of wonderful epiphany of a moment um we were in my second year of culinary school we were uh in a in a class it was called quantity food preparation so we actually prepared a meal to to serve diners uh, Mm -hmm. for a lunch period during the the week and um the each week was a different um theme um of like like a ethnic theme Mm -hmm. so like one week maybe french one week italian this particular week was hungarian so i was on the entree team and we made goulash and um one of my um fellow students who was the head of our team um i mean we're sitting there making goulash and we're like measuring paprika and put and he walked over and he's like if i see any one of y'all pick up a measuring spoon one more time i'm failing you this week (laughs) and like there was this moment where it was like okay i actually have to use my senses and my creativity and whatever to actually make this dish decent and that was a huge turning point for Mm, me yeah yeah, it was. That's cool. I thought I can actually do this now. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, my second year of, of college, um, they keep encouraging you to, or culinary school, they keep encouraging you to get a job in a restaurant, get a job in a restaurant. So uh, I finally did. I, I got a job um, with a catering company and um, who also owned, did a wholesale cookie dough business and sold mm-hmm. cookie doughs to Whole Foods for them to bake and, mm-hmm. and sell. Um, and my first day, all I did was measured flour, sugar, butter. Um, oats, raisins, and cracked eggs, and I like I didn't want to leave. I was like, "This is the greatest thing <laughs> ever." And then, then I knew I was like, "Okay, this yeah, is this is the path great. for me." And you eventually started a restaurant. Well, with someone right? I, I eventually um, 
bought into a restaurant. Bought in, okay, yeah, yeah, in 2007, yeah. I um, sold my uh, house and, and took the equity out of it, took out a loan and, and, wow. and bought into a restaurant, which is, you know, not the most sound uh, financial <laughs> advice to, to buy into a, a restaurant of all things uh, when the country's going into an yeah. economic recession. Um, so I, and then I kind of went from thinking I, I did it. Like I, I've accomplished the ultimate, my career. I, I, I'm part owner of a restaurant. I'm a chef at a restaurant to what in the heck did I just do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then eventually cafe momentum started. So cafe momentum, um, and you can, you can correct whatever I say here, but, uh, the way I see it is, is uh, is way more than a restaurant. It's really a, a mission to uh, the restaurant's kind of the excuse almost to uh, build into the lives of these young uh, men and women who have gotten into some trouble in the juvenile court system um, that uh, is really trajectory changing for them, uh, the opportunity to not just get work experience but life skills and training and belief and all that mentoring. So I'm going to let you talk all, all about it. But I'm really fascinated by the origin of it. Like how did... How did you go from owning a restaurant and trying to make that work to <laughs> Cafe Momentum and this whole vision and this whole mission to lift up a group of people that are very marginalized and ignored in our culture? Um, tell us about how, how it got started. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> so bought into a restaurant in 2007. Um, by 2008, in spite of the recession, had grown the business by almost 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, while other restaurants were closing, we were flourishing. Um, I'd been nominated by D Magazine here in Dallas, a, a prominent local publication, as best up-and-coming chef in Dallas. Um, and then in May of 2008, I was uh, voluntold that <laughs> I was going to go teach eight young men in, inside a juvenile detention facility to make ice cream for an ice cream competition at the Dallas Farmer's Market. And... Um, Quite honestly, the the moment that I met those eight young men, I felt the greatest sense of shame I've ever felt in my entire life Hmm. Um, because the moment I met them, I realized I had stereotyped them before I'd ever met them. Hmm. Um, The way they walk, the way they talk, their their attitude or behavior towards me, um, all those preconceived stereotypes or ideas, I was wrong. Hmm. Um, And the shame came from I thought I was a better human being than that. I thought I I thought I was a considerably better human being than mm-hmm. that. But when confronted with the reality, literally face-to-face, um, I was wrong. Hmm. And, um, you know, my running joke is that uh, all eight of those young men, the, the moment I met them, they all looked me in the eye and called me sir. And, um, you know, 25 years of working in kitchens, I've been called a lot of names in a lot of languages <laughs> in a lot of kitchens, just not sir. Yeah. Um, and um, But that shame led to humility. Uh, and that humility led me to spend the next several hours not so much um, teaching them, but listening. Hmm. Um, and they were teaching me. And I listened to these eight young men tell me who they really were, how they really were, hmm. why they really were. And then two days later, the county bust them down to the farmer's market, and they're competing against college culinary students um, with their ice creams that each one of them made. And at the end of the competition, one of the young men actually won the whole thing. Wow. Wow. And he said something to me that to this day is the most profound statement I've ever heard a human being make in regards to who they are as a person, who, what their heart is. Um, he said, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. Hmm. And, um, you know, that brought me back to those Sunday suppers at my grandparents' house, hmm. why I loved cooking. Like, yeah. He said, when I get out, I'm going to get a job in a restaurant. And I thought, <laughs> Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he, you know, of course, my, you know, award nominating chef opinion asked me, he said, sir, where do you think I should work? Wendy's or Chili's? And yeah. <laughs> um, I, of course, professionally told him whoever hires you first and, and then whoever pays you the most money second, you know. Yeah. Um, and as I drove home that day, I, I just I started thinking of his story. Mm-hmm. Um and I started thinking about he's going to go back to the same house in the same street in the same neighborhood in the same school, um, the same same financial instabilities, the same you know lack of resource that had pushed him on a path to detention in the first place. Mm-hmm. None of that changes. And, and and I just realized you know he's just he's never going to make it to a Wendy's or Chili's. Um, but as I kept obsessively thinking more and more, I began to think about myself, myself at his age. 
um, and began to quickly realize that, you know, for both of us, our lives were by and large dictated by choices that were made for each of us before we were ever born. Mm. Um, and those choices involved the color of our skin. They involved the socioeconomic class we were born in, the part of town that we were born in, mm -hmm. the schools, the resources we had access to. And, you know, I had never done anything in my life to earn all of the opportunities that had been handed to me over and over again. I had also never done anything in my life to earn second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth chances, right? And yet here's this young man that had never done anything in life to not have those opportunities, to not have those mm -hmm. resources. Um, and yet here he was also saying, if you're gonna give me a first chance to show the world who I am, I'm gonna beat college culinary students and win a, win a competition. Um, and I just remember thinking to myself, if this is the way the world really does work, then I don't wanna live in it. Hmm. And it means one of two things, either I can walk away mm -hmm. and say, but I don't know what to do, uh, or just right. lean in. Uh, and I chose to, I chose to lean in and, and that meant volunteering more time in the juvenile department and doing a lot more listening. And when you listen to the staff in the juvenile department, talk about the young people, they use two words over and over again, consistency and stability, consistency and stability. And uh, when you hear the young people talk about their lives and what's going on in their lives, you realize that their lives, they're seeking those two things. Mm -hmm. So they, they use those words because that's something that they're lacking? They're the, lacking, yeah. Right. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, their, their lives are consistently unstable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll give you an example. We've worked with over 1,000 youth um, since we opened Cafe Momentum almost seven years ago. 1,000? Yeah. Wow. And 42% are, are um, homeless. Hmm. Uh, and a large percentage, like probably over 80%, um, don't have any type of uh, guardian or adult figure helping them solve that issue mm -hmm. or supporting them in solving that issue. So when you think about just the, the basic idea that a 15, 16, 17-year-old young person doesn't even know where they're going to lay their head down at night, mm -hmm. I mean, let's start there. And then right. let's, let's you can mm -hmm. quickly deduce they also don't know where they're going to get food. They also don't know where they're going to shower. They don't know where they're going to get medical care. They don't know where. It just keep, continues to spiral from there. So that was why in, in you know, um, in in building out Cafe Momentum and then the restaurant gets so much uh, attention and and, and and which is great. It's it, it is the public facing, it is the public mm -hmm. engaging mm -hmm. entity of the work that we do. But I always laugh and say, uh, you know, there when I used to tell people I wanted to start a nonprofit restaurant working with uh, you know, justice-involved youth, they would say, well, aren't all restaurants nonprofit? Um, i say, well, at least you know I'm honest, right? But, you know, the restaurant accounts, the revenue from the restaurant accounts for about 30% of our overall, overall operating budget. And I always say it's kind of interesting because I think that's about 30% of the, of, the, of the resource that young people are actually getting out of the program because more than just the restaurant, we also have a community services center. Um, and in our community services center, um, we have... Uh, a case management team that's working to address those issues like like mm -hmm. housing instability, food insecurity, legal advocacy, um, general life advocacy. Um, we also have uh, a staff psychologist that does everything from clinical assessments to working through trauma care. Um, we have worked with, um, um, as I mentioned, over a thousand young people, and a hundred percent of them have, have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience, uh, also referred to as ACEs. Mm -hmm. um, I think what people that aren't um, deep in the work think of an adverse childhood experience as like, well, yeah, I had to walk uphill both ways to get to school yeah. when I was child. Right. An adverse childhood experience is severe trauma. Mm -hmm. An adverse childhood experience is I witnessed the murder of a family member or close friend. An adverse childhood experience is I was raped or molested by someone I know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when I say that all of them have experienced at least one of those, I would say on average, if you asked them 10 questions on adverse childhood experiences, they would have experienced seven to eight of them. Wow. wow. Um, so our, you know, our, our, our uh, Dr. Heyman, our staff psychologist works to like provide trauma care, also group therapy, um, individual therapy. And of course, as she sometimes 
jokes, couples therapy. Um, but then we also, and, and through a lot of failure, you know, we, we know education is important um, for a multitude of reasons. It's, 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 it's uh, from a confidence standpoint, education is important, but also from like a, um, what my, my life projection looks like going forward, it's important. Um, 54% of the young people that we work with have already dropped out of high school. And I, and I'd easily argue that 45 of the other 46% are completely disengaged with the, the, the public education mm-hmm. system. Um, whether it be because school is one of the first places that ever made them feel bad or dumb, um, whether it be because if you're homeless, you don't want to go to school because they're going to ask you to put an address down. And if you don't have one, you're afraid they're going to turn you into CPS. Um, so when you, when you put all that together, that, it's pretty bleak, right? So you've got yeah. tra- a, a lot of undealt with trauma, homelessness, instability, nobody who believes in them, school system that they're either disconnected from and there or disconnected from and not there anymore, whatever. No sense of future, no sense of and, opportunity. And they're caught in a legal system that is not designed to keep them out. You know, um, the, you know, a lot of people talk about like juvenile justice and the juvenile justice system is broken. It's not broken. The system does exactly what all systems perform exactly how they're designed to perform. Um, whether they're flawed or not, they're designed that way. Um, and the juvenile justice system is no different. Um, that's why recidivism rates are so high. That's why more than half of young people in this country that go to jail once will be back um, within three years, and I think it's seventy-five percent of them within five years. And so, um, for us, it's you know we we our mission is to focus on creating stabilization and then working to build foundation for the young people, so that by the time they're leaving. Um, our, our program and going on, they've got a solid foundation to really build the rest of their lives. So without intervention, they would just keep spiraling down. I mean, history shows that, that data yeah. shows that, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So you've chosen intervene. So what, what does, what does that actually look like? Like what are the, what's the process? What's the step? So you have the restaurant, you bring them in, you know, for a year, I think. But anyway, what, what do you actually do? Yeah. Like, so I'm, it's a 12 yeah. month program. Um, and, and, and so during that 12 months, they work in the restaurant, they work in every station in the restaurant. So in no particular order, they'll spend time being a busser and a server, host, hostess, food runner, line cook, prep cook, dishwasher. We do that for three reasons. Number one is they're learning new life skills and social skills. Uh, and they're getting to apply them to the unique environment that each one of those stations affords. So, you know, as an example, um, the way in which you would appropriately disagree with a fellow line cook while you're trying to get food out for 15 tables at one time is, is very different than the way in which you would appropriately disagree with a customer that sat down right. 10 minutes ago, ordered three minutes ago, and is already complaining that they've waited 45 minutes for their food. <laughs> now that that's ever happened in our restaurant, <laughs> customers are wonderful. Um, but, you know, they're also learning what their strengths are. Um, and, and as a young person whose life has by and large been built on survival, they have a lot of strengths, yeah. but they've always been told they're bad. I mean, surviving mm. is a skill. Yeah. Surviving yeah. is a strength. But when you get in trouble for surviving, you don't think of it as an advantage. Mm. And, and so you know, I'll give you an example. We, ran, we run specials all the time, and, and we ran a special on a Saturday night, and, and we told the, the, the interns, whoever sells the most specials gets to order a free entree. Well, young Mr. DJ sold us out of every single special we had in the restaurant in the first 45 <laughs> minutes we were open, and he wasn't even a waiter. Huh. He was a busser. But he was the first point of contact once a guest sat down at the table because he filled the water glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, So he deployed his sales pitch and ended it with, you just let the server know DJ told you to order the special. (laughs) 45 minutes later, he had a free entree. DJ has subsequently gone on to to become a fellow uh, on the Ruthie's Fueled by Cafe Cafe Momentum food trucks. And um, within his first two weeks of working on the food trucks – my friend Ashley Kleinert, who, who owns uh, the trucks, he approached her and said, how much do you pay Uber and Lyft to get other fellows to and from the, 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 the food truck hub to downtown so they can use public transportation? And she told him, he said, if I charged you 50% of what you're paying them now, would you pay me to drive the fellows hmm. back and forth? Wow. And you can inspect my car. It'll be clean, all this stuff. She said, okay, we'll give it a shot. DJ now drives an Escalade, um, and you know, but he's he's beginning to learn how he can take these strengths and yeah. apply them, you know, in general direction of his life. Um, the third thing they're learning, and 
maybe most important um, is what it means to be a part of a team. And I think, you know, we have um, this kind of like standard definition of team player, which means I do my best so I can put my team in position to succeed. And certainly when you're washing dishes, you realize very quickly that if you don't get your job done, you literally affect everyone else in the restaurant's Mm -hmm. ability to succeed at any given moment. But for our young people, what they're also learning is what it feels like to have a team that's rallying around them, a team of people that say, I'm going to do my best so that you're in position to be your best. Mm. And that's where that the, the, the that ecosystem of support comes, comes uh, into play because it's not just about the restaurant. It's about the case manager. It's about the, you know, our education manager. You know, as I mentioned earlier with the dropout rate, well, um, 100% of our, we built our own high school and 100% of our young people are now in school on track to graduate or have already graduated. And almost a third of them have, are in process of or have already enrolled in college. Wow. And so, oh my goodness. Um, that, so say that again. So you, you started your own high school. We started our own high school. Um, that's not something I thought I would be saying in culinary school. <laughs> that's not something anyone yeah. out in high school thought I would ever say yeah. either when I was a student there. Um, we, we learn, um, I think one of the most important things that we do as an organization culturally is we listen. Hmm. Um, young people will tell you at any given time what they need to be successful. You just have to listen and, and, and hear what they're saying. And we tried so hard. We found so many wonderful schools that, that really, you know, uh, are designed to work with with our population of young people and, and what their needs are. And our kids just wouldn't engage because hmm. it's school. It's at the end of the day at school. Um, and because of public transportation, they couldn't get there. Hmm. And so um, out of multiple failure, uh, we launched our own school uh, about two and a half years ago. Um, and as a result, you know, 100% of our young people are now graduating high school. And, and at this moment, uh, almost a third are, are going on to college. Wow. That's amazing. So I imagine you start off, you're going to do – you're going to do the restaurant. You're going to bring the skills that you know. And now you're doing school and you've got other advocacy things. So I, I imagine what you're doing now, you even mentioned, like, if you'd have told me I was doing, you know, going to do <laughs> mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I imagine this is a whole lot bigger than you thought you were getting yourself into when you started. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, I remember um, uh, when first kind of ideating around the idea of Cafe Momentum, I just thought, well, it's a restaurant. I give them a job, move on. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, but then like you go through this series of, um, questions that you begin to ask yourself and that the world forces you to ask yourself, you know, like, do you want to be a for-profit restaurant or a non-profit restaurant organization? Um, and, and, and in a wonderful, I would love to be a for-profit, uh, entity and not, not have to beg for money mm-hmm. nonstop. Um, but, um, you know, that was for me, the question was, do I ever want to have to tell a young person we can't do that because we don't have the money? Mm. We can't do that because we can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's something that could be detrimental to their their, their long, long-term long being. Um, and so, you know, and, and again, just continuing to listen and, and realizing um, that you just being a job would be like putting a Band-Aid on a waterfall. Um, when, when mm. so many of them are, are homeless, mm. when so many of them are so severely behind in school, when so many of them have, you know, our young people in the first 60 days of them coming to our program are going and getting physicals. And a lot of times it's their first contact they've ever had with a doctor. Um, mm. And on the one end, that's crazy enough. But then when you begin to, when you begin to, to research further, um, the neighborhoods and zip codes that they're coming from around Dallas County, those are the neighborhoods and zip codes with anywhere from eight to 12 times higher rates of, of, of diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're coming from, from neighborhoods and communities that need more uh, uh, access mm-hmm. to medical care. And, and so for them to be able to, to, to go and do that, there's a ripple effect that begins to take place in their household. So I imagine you see as, as they start to get for the first time help, a vision for the future, support, somebody who believes in them. I mean, that by itself, I think, would be huge. Um, I, I'm sure you start to see this transformation in them, right, where they start to understand that who they thought they were is not who they are or 
Does well, that make sense? Talk about yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I, I would just twist that a little bit and say who I've been told I am is not who mm, I am. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, starting with the fact that the juvenile justice industry term to describe the young people that we work with is throwaway. Um, mm. it, that's an egregious term to ever use to describe a human being. Yeah. Um, but especially a child. Yeah. But for the young people, you see when they come in the program that it's the scarlet letter they wear on their chest that says, this is who I am, not who I, not who I was born to be, not who I want to be, but I've been told in every facet of my life repeatedly that this is who I am. So I just bought it. Hmm. Um, so really the, the, the process is pretty interesting to see them. They, they, they go from this very intense, like very early enthusiastic natural high of I'm getting a t- positive attention. I'm getting mm-hmm. positive affirmation. I'm getting, po- this feels great to, okay, what's behind all of this? Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. are you trying to yeah. pull over or on me? Mm-hmm. Because nobody, I'm not worthy of all this stuff. So you're somewhere yeah. along yeah. the ways, you're full of it. You're, you're, <laughs> the, the other shoe's going to drop here. Mm-hmm. So then it goes into, so I'm going to force that other shoe to drop. So I'm going to be more defiant. I'm going to stop showing up and we're going to see what you do. Or I'm going to show up and I'm going to yell at you and we're going to see what you do. And I'm, and you know, that's where we as an organization focus on um, the concept of compassion and accountability, hmm. um, which is simply to say um, uh, we, we're going to use a lot of grace. We don't expect you to be perfect because we're not perfect either. But we are going to hold you to a high level of expectation because we believe that you can be there. And, if, and, and and we're going to continue to believe that until you begin to believe it yourself. So what you typically see is a lot of young people will come in the program and, and I almost like equate it to like, you know how in high school, like as a freshman, you're like, oh, this is really cool. Like I'm here with the juniors and seniors. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And then your sophomore year, you're like, okay, this isn't new anymore. And I still have two more years after this year till I get out of here. Oh man, this is, and then your junior year, you're like, okay, so I'm halfway over this. I'm one of the, I'm kind of king of the hill a little bit now because I'm no longer a little freshman. The freshmen are looking up to me and this is great. And then your senior, you're like, okay, I'm ready to go on. Like I'm, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of the same thing um, with the young people coming into Cafe Momentum is they kind of go through this continued metamorphosis of, of like, of growth and mm-hmm. like um, going through. And, and so typically what you see is a lot of them will end up leaving uh, and, or in some instances being dismissed um, from the program within the first, like I would say four to six months, typically around the, the three to four month mark. Um, but we never say goodbye. We'll say, let's, let's try again. Um, so they'll go back through orientation again. They'll mm-hmm. start back over. There's four tiers that they go through uh, in order to complete the program. They'll start back over at tier one. Um, and what you begin to see is um, for them, they're like, okay, wait a minute. So the, the things that I did would normally have somebody stop believing in me or turn on whatever. And what you're yeah. saying is you actually believe in me, but you're going to make me start over and you're going to keep working with me. And you're going to, and you begin to see that second time. Sometimes it takes a third time. Um, they begin to, there's this like, okay, it's not just, um, you know, uh, you're not just compassionate, but like you're, you're, you're consistently not giving up on me. You're Mm. consistently, um, believing in me. And then you begin to see kind of the the buy-in of the, of the process. What's a a typical, and maybe there's not a typical story, but what's a typical story of students that graduate? From your pro, like, what do they go on to, to do? That's they, a, they go into food service, or no? That's just, a great okay. question because yeah. you're right. There is nothing typical, yeah. um, and that's part of like, you know, within our organization, we, we want to make sure that our the way that our program is designed, especially from the outside looking in, is that it is magnifying the fact that there's nothing typical about our young people, and there's nothing typical about um, where they're coming from, and there's nothing typical about you know where they're going, and so we, we were. Um, what we we acknowledge is that we've worked with over a thousand young people, which means we've experienced over a thousand different starting lines, hmm. um, because experience of where these young people have come from and are coming into our program can, is always different, mm-hmm. um, and also what their aspirations are 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 also, you know, very different. Um, people used to ask me all the time, you know, what if these what if these young people don't want to be chefs? And I'm like. 
great because if we network, I don't need the competition right, anymore. Right. right? Like I don't. Want, um, but that's not what that's not what we're designed to do. The restaurant provides a unique opportunity to to a engage the public with with the issue mm-hmm. and being a part of the solution, but it also um, allows our young people to hone skills that they can use in wherever they want to go in life. You know, talking about DJ, that mm-hmm. ability to sell somebody on something. I, I told that same story to the Dallas Bar Association, and they're like, "Oh, he could be a lawyer." Yeah, um, yeah. and it is. It's a skill that yeah, he can use right. wherever he wants. He, he could be on a podcast. You know, he, mm-hmm. right? Um, and he's beginning to learn and, and see, and, and so that's why you know it's so important for us. You know, we have a career services coordinator, and, and her whole focus is to expose our young people to all sorts of different careers and career paths um, so that they can kind of go on their own. So we have a young man that um, um, will tell you that his least favorite station in the restaurant was waiting tables and serving. Ironically, we got him a job at the Jewel Hotel in Dallas, Hmm. and he was a waiter. Um, But he... Making better tips. (laughs) <laughs> oh yes, and especially at the Jewel, right? That's right, right. And 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 he used that um, to continue to stabilize his life while he went to school to be a diesel mechanic. Mm. Became a diesel mechanic, did that for about a year, and thought, you know what? I like working on cars as a hobby. I don't like doing it as a career. So mm. now he's a medical attendant in the United States Navy. Oh, wow. um, went through his station in Guam, and I'm gonna. He is gonna be so upset with me that I did not get his title correct. But, but he does medical work uh, in the Navy. <laughs> um, we have another young woman that went through our program, um, and she went on to nursing school at El Centro College uh, in downtown Dallas, and she's a, a, a medical assistant now. Uh, we have a young man that went to. Um, left our program he became the first high school graduate ever of of his entire family Hmm. um went to richland college got his associate's degree uh won an award from nasa interned with them and he's about to graduate from the university of texas at arlington and he wants to go on uh and and get a phd and and build a career with nasa all the way to we have a young man that Mm -hmm. works in in an oil changing place right and he loves it because Mm -hmm. he loves cars and and that's what he wants to do is fix cars and he has aspirations one day to to own his own garage or or do you know and and that's but you know that's amazing it's yeah so it it really runs the gamut um and and that's that's wonderful because you know for us it's it's our our focus is is that they leave us with a a solid foundation to and and direction to build the Mm -hmm. rest of their lives well, I love the stories, and I know that's motivating. But at the same time, I know what you're doing. You don't need me to tell you this is really hard. You're trying to run a restaurant that's really a nonprofit, care for all these huge variety of, of needs to resource these, you know, all the stuff that you're doing. So what what's your inner drive? I mean, I most people maybe would have the thought to start this and expand <laughs> this and all that, but wouldn't really do it. You've not only done it, but now you've, you know, you've just keep investing more and more of your life in these kids. So what, what drives you from an inner perspective? Like, what is your motivation every day to do this? Um, you know, uh, that's probably a good eight to 10 hour podcast, (laughs) (laughs) um, because it's, there's not one thing. It's a million different things. It's, um, I, I firmly believe that our personal mission as human beings in life should be to leave this world a better place than we found it. Mm-hmm. That if all of us can do that, that um, as as a as a as a son, as a father, as a human, that that that's what I should do, and that's what everybody should do. And and um, I think. Um, you know, when you get into the nature of this work, and, and you mentioned it earlier about, you know, dealing with, with you know, um, um, a group of young people that have been marginalized. And um, I think for me, um, there's a lot of layers to that onion. Hmm. Um, and no pun intended. <laughs> um, Can't help but, it. But, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and um, I, I think... Um, it's obsessive to keep, you know, peeling back that onion. Um, I, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, seeing um, the 
what the initial trajectory of these young people's lives is and then beginning to understand how the color of their skin plays a role in that and mm. how my color, of the color of my skin has played a role in that. And um, it, it's a, it's, it's a real thing, and and I think what's so um, alarming to me is that the way that we operate as a, a society, and, and not just in this country, but across the world, um, is that those that are affected by these inequities, and in by and large, a lot of ways, don't realize it because it's the system or systems are not designed for them to. They they're they feel it and they're affected by it, but they mm-hmm. don't. It's it's almost an acceptance of the way it is, and on the other hand, those of us that benefit um, from these inequities are the way that it that these systems are designed is for us to never know or question or understand. But when you work with you know um, young people, you begin to not under not just understand them and their history, but histories of their families. You begin to see and acknowledge and understand 400 years of history. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm totally going off on, on a, no, a tangent here, but, um, I, I, my, 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 my 77 year old dad lives with, lives with us. And, uh, I refer to him as my 77 year old teenager. Um, <laughs> but I mean, this is a man that was born in 1944. Um, and, and for what it's worth, you know, my, my mom was born 10 years after him. She graduated from Samuel High School here in Dallas. The first high school that was desegregated through desegregation while she was a student at high school mm-hmm. six years before I was born. Mm-hmm. Yes, relatively new. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I was talking to my dad about, you know, uh, so so my dad grew up in schools that were completely segregated. So I mean that that's his acknowledgement, his understanding of his life, and he's question. He's beginning to, at seventy seven years old. He's beginning to question mm-hmm. things, right? Um, because he's seeing, and he's hearing, you know, stories of the young people that that we work with. Um, and so I started talking to him about the 13th amendment and even just, and I started asking him about if he's ever heard of the three fifths compromise and the one drop rule. And he, in 77 years old, he's never heard of these. Hmm. Um, there's sign, there, there are sign, those things have played significant roles in equality and mm-hmm. equity in this country. And they've never been undone. Mm-hmm. Um, you take the 13th amendment, the 13th amendment, was a stat, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln abolished slavery in 1863. And uh, the 13th Amendment, which was the constitutional amendment that abolished slavery, was not ratified until 1865. So you have to realize that there's this room full of lawmakers that are debating <laughs> what the abolition of slavery looks like. Because there are a lot of people in this country mm-hmm. that did not want slavery abolished. Mm-hmm. So the 13th Amendment says that no individual in this country can be enslaved or indentured or treated as a slave unless they've been convicted of a crime and are sentenced to such. Hmm. Well, common sense can tell us really quickly what happened in states that depended on slavery for commerce and and, and created or part of the creation of such vitriol towards, you know, uh, people of color, specifically black people, um, you could pick up, you could accuse somebody of a crime and they would go in front of a white judge and a white jury and a white sheriff and a white, you know, and, and, and they're going to be sentenced to go back onto a, a plantation. Now we fast forward to 2021 and you look at prisons today and, so if prison was the way for white people to hold power over people of color, specifically black people, then how has that changed today when prisons are disproportionately full of people of color? And then, you know, people talk a lot about private the privatization of prisons and to me, that's a little bit of a smoking gun because there's a very, very small percentage of prisons in this country that are actually privatized, right? But there are a lot of companies that ma- that that uh, manage prisons. They're a public prison, but it's managed by a private company. There are private companies that manage food service. There are private companies that manage. There's a young man um, that 
unfortunately was in our program and, and committed a crime and he's gone away for 35 years and I talk to him just about every other day, you wouldn't believe the amount of fees and, and such that I pay to talk to him on the phone or to help him buy a bag of Doritos in the commissary. Um, and when you begin to look at, um, and even just like the ripple effect of other businesses that, that make profit off of this you know, prison industrial complex, mm-hmm. um, has anything really changed? We still have this same inequity that exists that did in 1865 when the 13th Amendment was was um, ratified and that we still have people that are holding power over people of color and, and profiting off of them and, and using them um, through hmm. a prison system. You know, that's a that's a way down no, a rabbit hole that doesn't have to do with cooking. But it's yeah. when you ask when when you yeah, ask when sure. what, what drives me, it's that. Yeah, I hear is the that passion. For, not, yeah, not, for sure. You know, all men are created equal. Yeah. But we should all strive for a society in which all men are treated equal and provided mm-hmm. equi- equality and equity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the things that it's uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, but then also when I. When I think about the, the stories, like here at, at the Good Complex, we want to highlight stories that are that need to be told. They need a wider audience, um, and Cafe Momentum is one of them. But then your story is one of them too, because there's people, people who are watching the Good Complex are watching it for a reason, you know, because they care about doing good in the world and you know that kind of stuff. And what I, I think that I'm, I'm still, and I'm just kind of a late processor. I think I'm still <laughs> thinking of like kind of the origin story. Um, and you were confronted with some things that you couldn't like unexperience now, you yep. know, these, these men, and you had to have a choice to make. And we all, I think that's a really fat, like we, we want to support and give, you know, wider support for Cafe Momentum, but there's also people that are watching that are like, well, like, what do I do when I'm confronted with something or I see something that I can't unsee now, or I learn something about maybe inequality or something I can't unlearn it. Um, and your story could be a little bit intimidating because now it's like it's way bigger than you thought it was going to be. You know, it's like talk to us a little bit about because I think we we all see that we we have a choice. We can go right, we can go left, we can ignore it, we can engage. Um, and obviously, this has gone way bigger than you thought, and maybe it's way harder than you thought. Maybe it's like like would you do it again? You know, like like what what would you say having having experienced all of this? What, what's your advice for people that do want to do want to leave the world a better place? Don't know where to start. They do see things going on in the world, and they're and they're intimidated to actually get engaged. You know. Um, you know, it sounds um, so simplistic, and it really is, but it's also so hard. But no one ever got mad at anybody for caring. Hmm. You know, in the history of the world, in the history of civilization and society, no one ever said, oh, that guy just cared too much, you know? <laughs> and so what I've had to to learn is I'm not perfect. I mean, clearly through the course of this podcast so far, everybody's like, oh, my God, that's a perfect – just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm not perfect. I'm not a perfect human being, and I'm flawed. But what I've learned through the young people is they don't care if you're perfect. They care that you care. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and and so, you know, I, I've continued to make mistakes, but I think the biggest thing is, um, as I mentioned earlier, we focus on grace at Cafe Momentum mm-hmm. and giving young people grace, but they give us grace back. And what that creates is an environment which is to give yourself grace. And so I, I think, um, I guess ultimately what I'm saying is, I think we overthink things sometimes mm. and try to talk ourselves out of it because we think, overthink, and think, and overthink, and think, and overthink. Um, and what I've and, and I'm hugely guilty of it, um, hugely guilty of it. Um, but like things like taking the school, you know, mm. I mean, I've overthought that a thousand times over and failed miserably until we didn't. Right. You know, yeah. trying to get kids into school and then they don't show up. Trying to get in in in. Um, but that's just part of the process. And yeah. so I think when, when people are looking at, you know, um, whatever, you know, leaning into to whatever, like no one's ever faulted anybody for caring. No one's ever faulted anyone for saying, I want to know more and I want to learn more. Hmm. No one's ever faulted anybody for that. And in fact, I think people have a tendency, you know, to, to embrace it. Hmm. 
one of one thing people can do is engage what you're doing. You're not on your own. You know, you welcome, <laughs> you know, you need other people to help resource and help pull this off. And I know you've got a documentary in process to share the the Cafe Momentum story and, the, and more importantly, even the story of these young people. So talk about the documentary and what's what's the hope there? What are you what are you doing? Where's that at? And how can we how, how can we watch it when it's done? Well, um, so, so it is done. Oh, it's um, done. Okay. Yeah, we um, we filmed it throughout uh, a bulk of the the pandemic, um, and the the idea behind the documentary was twofold. Uh, number one is the restaurant gets so much attention, as we talked about earlier, that we wanted people to we wanted to kind of peel back the curtain and people to see actually. Yeah. Again, no pun intended, but how the sausage is made. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted you got pe- all kinds of food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You should hear my collection of dad jokes. <laughs> um, but we wanted to, um, because I think when again, like it's not just a job; it, it's an ecosystem, yeah. Yeah. and we wanted people to see the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And and so, like you know, having insight to our school and, and meeting Miss Mary, who, who's our education manager. And, and, and Dr. Heyman, our, our, you know, our, our, our director of clinical services. And, um, but we also wanted to show people why, why all of those things are necessary, why there's not just this one silver bullet that's going to mm-hmm. solve everything that's gone wrong in this young person's life and, and, and why it's necessary. Um, and Did you think starting out that it might be a sil- silver bullet? He's like, we just get get him a job, and we're I'm going to change a kid's life. Um, definitely. Yeah. Well, and I, I think like, and again, like, there's um, at every turn, it's like, oh, you're kidding me. Oh, you're kidding yeah. me. Oh, you're you know, like you begin to as you're peeling those layers of the onion, mm-hmm. you're exposed to more and more and more and more. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you like. You think through with young people. I've driven kids home. I've driven you know all this mm-hmm. stuff. But then when one invites you into their home and you go in and it's an apartment and there are walls in the apartment and there's a ceiling in the apartment and there's a floor in the apartment and that's it. Hmm. Yeah. There's not a couch. There's not a bed. There's not a table. There's not a chair. There's nothing. Hmm. And their family lives in there. They sleep on the floor. They, um, it's jarring. Yeah. And you, 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 the question you ask is how did we get here? Right. Right, because this is multi generational at this point. Um, so um, I'm sorry, I took you off the. No, 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 the, <laughs> no. The documentary. Um, and so, but that's part of the documentary sure. is to kind yeah. of I- expose like this is why all of this is necessary. This is why the whole ecosystem is necessary, and 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 also to show um, that this. The, 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 the nature of the work that we do is not limited to Dallas. And as we look to grow and expand around the country, we want to build that conversation as to what our model looks like. And, and we've actually been, you know, a lot of the, you know, at the end of the documentary, it shows that, you know, this is not just happening in Dallas. This is happening all across the country. And, and in fact, there are 728,000 young people that enter various juvenile systems across the country mm-hmm. every year. And that in any other you know, from a medical or scientific way, we would look at this as an as an epidemic. This this mm-hmm. is a this, a crisis issue, um, and, and yet we've never stopped to question ourselves. Like, and the results are always the same every year, right? Mm-hmm. Half the kids are going back. This is happening. This happened. And we've never stopped to question ourselves and say, Is it working? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe what we've been doing this right. whole time is not working. And so yeah. we're really trying to position ourselves to say, Hey, look. This is the way the system works. This is the model for juvenile justice right now. This is the results we get. This is our model, and this is the results we mm-hmm. get. Yeah. So what if we just took our model and made it the model for juvenile justice? What happens then? Then maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you start with 728,000 youth, but then eventually, like, that number is going to continue to go to go down. And, and eventually, I, you know, I no longer have a job. Yeah, uh, I'll just yeah. go back to washing dishes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great vision. So how how can people see the documentary? So right now we, we haven't um, released it publicly. Yeah. Um, we uh, the filmmakers were that we worked with um, as part of our agreement with them. Uh, they wanted to enter it into different festivals and stuff like okay. that. So we're going to wait um, till uh, late spring, early summer next year before we 
um, allow it um, to be public, but we are um, mm-hmm. hosting private screenings. So um, if anyone has a, a group that they'd like to get together and, and host a private screening, we'd love to have that conversation. Okay. Um, and we have done that. Uh, in fact, we did a, a private screening for um, the Council for Juvenile Justice Administrators mm-hmm. uh, at their annual conference a couple of months ago, which is it's the head of every state juvenile department in the country. And wow. it's a little bit uh, unnerving to film. <laughs> To, to screen a film that basically says the way you do this is all wrong <laughs> and, and yeah. they were all like you're right yeah. you're right yeah. you know it was yeah, it was it was phenomenal yeah. um wow. and and so you know we've been we've been doing that That's and so, so there good. are opportunities to do that right. um and so you said you wanted to expand i know i i think i read nashville and, and pittsburgh pittsburgh yeah. to do more cafe momentums there i know you want to expand beyond that how can people how can people engage like if they say man i I want to help. Like, I want to be part of the solution. I want to help these young people. Um, I want to help, like, the vision of Cafe Momentum. You can't do it by yourself. It takes tremendous resources and other things to do it. So how can people engage who would like to engage? Um, People that are in Dallas, come eat. Hmm. Come to the restaurant. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, that, that the juvenile justice industry refers to our young people as throwaway. Well, there's another layer of that, which is our young people hardly ever leave their own neighborhood. So that's the world that they know that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so when they're coming to the restaurant, they're coming downtown, they're coming to the heart of the city, they're leaving their neighborhood. And when people from around the Metroplex are coming and dining, our young people are beginning to, to, to experience themselves as no longer just a citizen of their neighborhood, but a citizen of a much mm-hmm. larger community, a much larger community with, with much larger resource, a, a wider network. Um, and that may be the most empowering feeling they get in their entire time. And that starts with people showing up. It starts mm. with people showing up at the restaurant and enjoying a wonderful meal. By the way, the food's really good. Yeah, um, <laughs> We've been consistently ranked as one of the top restaurants in Dallas since the day we opened. And... Um, but, but by sitting and enjoying this great food, what you're doing is you're, you're telling that young person that they matter, mm-hmm. that their life matters, and that you believe in them. And that's significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're outside of Dallas, um, you are welcome to donate. We are a nonprofit organization, um, and, and it costs money to, to run an effective program. And, and you can go to cafemomentum.org and, and, and make a donation that way. We also, during the pandemic, launched um, a, a, a fairly robust retail line that we ship actually internationally. Uh, mm-hmm. And that includes, you know, we make everything from scratch in the restaurant. So it includes vinegars that we make from scratch oh. to spice rubs and special salt mixes, all the way to t shirts and hats. Um, and, uh, we do ship that it, it, that's cafe momentum goods.com. Okay. Um, and you can go on, we've got mm. some wonderful holiday, um, packages for, for people to order. And they are like, I, it's kind of been amazing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's in surreal to me to see, you know, people in Michigan ordering <laughs> t-shirts from us. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 it, yeah. it is especially to come from, you know, um, when I first started talking to people about the Capitanum concept, I was laughed out of rooms. I was, um, I remember distinctly a, a man asking me what my what I planned to do when kids started stabbing each other in the kitchen. Mm. I, I was told repeatedly, those kids don't want to work; they just want to collect a check. Uh, I was told those kids have never been to a nice restaurant; they can't cook your food. Um, and that's the message that was being mm. sent to these yeah. young people. Yeah. So now for the young people to be putting labels on boxes that are being shipped to Michigan and mm. understanding that people in Michigan believe in, in, mm. in, in, in what we're doing and in, in them, yeah. it's, it's really that's powerful. amazing. Wow. Well, Chad, it, it is an amazing story and what you're doing to change the trajectory of people's story who, um, you know, I believe are made in God's image and have innate value and a future and you're providing you're, you're, providing the opportunity for that to happen. And so thank you for what you're doing in our community and for being part of the good complex today. And, you know, it's really a great example. There's so many learnings from this one, you know, (laughs) like, uh, you know, allowing yourself to be disrupted, but not stopping at just being disrupted. I mean, that's, that's a big step just to be disrupted, but then to say, I'm going to do something. And I think for, for most of us, we're not going to start a, a restaurant and a high school and all that, but we can do something. Mm-hmm. Like we can allow ourselves to be disrupted by a need. There's plenty of them. And do something. Just get started. Just do something and then just see where it goes. 
right? You, your journey, you'd never, you, you would never know. I know your journey's ongoing, but you would never guess that it'd be like it is now, right? I, I respectfully would never guess that I would be sitting here with you guys uh, today <laughs> while I was trying to figure out how to make Bernays sauce in culinary <laughs> school. Like, yeah. That wasn't, yeah. wasn't right. part of my right. path, I thought. And also um, just, I think, a great example of using power to lift up other people rather right. than simply to keep it mm-hmm. and stay comfortable. It's a stewardship of power. And, uh, and well put. You know, so power is always given, mm-hmm. I believe, to lift others up. It's not for us. It's for for those who don't have it. Completely agree. And uh, and as you've been exposed to inequities and where people have been stripped of power and to be able to use power to say, you know what, uh, we're going to change that. And uh, it's 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 a it's the right choice. It's yeah. a loving choice. It's a bold choice. And it's a great example Um of how to use yeah. how to use power for the sake of others. Yeah. So uh, it's something we can all do too. Like this isn't just hear about him and go like that. I mean, that is it's it's celebratable, but it, it's a way of life that we can all do. And that's really what the good complex is about. It's not only about conversations. It's really about a a bigger movement where we choose love. Uh, we choose to lift others up who have been stripped of power. It's where we allow ourselves to be disrupted and to just do something and and to begin to get started. So thank you for being part of this and for The Good Complex. I'm Jeff Jones and Greg Holmes.